Well, if you've been here for a little bit, you know we've been making our way through 1 Peter. Uh, but for the next few weeks, we're going to hit pause on that series and spend some time considering Christ's advent, uh, which is literally Jesus coming, his arrival into the world. And it's, you know this, but it's this singular event, Christ coming into the world that splits history in two uh, so that everything that comes before it is ultimately a pointer to Christ's arrival and everything that comes after it is ultimately shaped by his arrival. There's lots of different places that we could go to consider the incarnation, but this year we're going to take a look at Luke's birth narrative, Dr. Luke. And one of the main things that makes Luke's account stand out, kids, where are you at? Ready? One of the main things that makes Luke's account stand out is the presence of angels. There's angels in Luke's account. Messengers sent by God to announce the redemption that he is going to work through his son. And so we're going to look, uh, we've got three weeks, we're going to look at all three of those accounts where we see angels announcing the redemption that God would bring through his son, and uh, we'll take those three and see what we can learn. So if you have your copy of the scriptures, you can turn to Luke, Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 5. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the back in the foyer. You can feel free to take one and use it uh, during the service. Take one home with you if you like. As our gift to you, that would be wonderful. Uh, Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5. And as I say often, this this is the best part of the sermon. Here it comes. God's Word. God's revealed Word to us. You ready? Wow. Okay. The silence was deafening. You ready? There we go. Okay. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 5. Here we go. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. 
I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. This is God's word. Uh, Would you pray with me again for just a moment? Lord, uh, we pray again that you would speak now to our hearts through your word. We know that uh, more than anything, what we need is, is to see Christ again, to see your love poured out to us, to see you miraculously working redemption for us sinners, that we might have peace, that we might not be afraid, but have confidence and, and certainty that you are for us. So would you do that now? Lord, we, we know this is a work that you must do. So, Lord, we pray now that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we we just sang a few moments ago, I will not fear when darkness falls. It was easier said than done, right? Throughout the scriptures, we learn that because of God's grace in our lives poured out to us in Christ, we are empowered to live lives without fear. In fact, a careful study of the Bible will reveal that the most frequently repeated command in all the scriptures is some version of this. Do not be afraid. Over a hundred times, fear not. Do not be afraid. That should tell us something both about the world that we live in and the condition of our own hearts. The world is a frightening place, and if we're honest, there are lots of things to be afraid of, aren't there? You scroll through the news long enough, and really not long at all, it won't take you long at all, and fear will begin to rise. Our our hearts easily bend towards fear in all its forms. Panic, terror, anxiety, dread, worry, anger. When we are confronted with the reality of living in a world cursed by sin, our heart's response is often to be afraid, to be controlled by that fear. What are you afraid of this morning? Kids, uh, what are you afraid of? Shout, shout, shout it out. What are you afraid of? Thunderstorms, I know that. What are you afraid of? Cliffs. Cliffs are scary. Other kids, what are you afraid of? Cove. Wasps. Me too, man. I stepped on some wasps, got stung. That is not fun. That is some serious pain. Yes. Bulls? Like like cow? Like the animal? Okay. All right. Um, what are you afraid of this morning? To what degree are you driven by fear? Did I miss one? <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> To what degree are you driven by fear? 
uh, probably more than you're willing to admit or maybe more than you even realize. Driven by the fear of loneliness. Driven by the fear of failure. Driven by the fear of discomfort. The fear of the future. The fear of being out of control. The fear of not having enough. The fear of loss. And we respond to those fears in various ways, don't we? Sometimes we just run away. We refuse to deal with it. We distract ourselves. Sometimes we get aggressive and angry and we think we can sort of just punch our way through the fear. Sometimes the fear just paralyzes us and we can't move at all. And sometimes we try to bargain with it or appease our fear. And so we we split, we swing, we stay, or we pay. But in each instance, we are controlled by our fear. It's a universal experience. There's no one in this room. If you, if you are the person that has never experienced fear, I would like to talk to you after this uh, service is done. It's a uni- universal experience. Everyone knows what it is to be afraid. And the reason for that, you want, to, you want to know why fear is a universal experience? Because death is a universal experience. And at the root of all fear is the fear of death. 1902, uh, a philosopher, William James, uh, 19th century American philosopher, psychologist, he wrote a book called The Varieties of Religious Experience. And one of his conclusions with this, so he, he, he takes a look at a bunch of dis- different religious traditions, and he comes up with some interesting conclusions. And one of them is this, it's very poignant actually. He says, the awareness of our inevitable, unavoidable death is the worm at the core of human existence and consciousness. At the very core of human consciousness and and existence is a worm at the core. A realization, a, 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 a knowledge of our impending and inevitable death. And it eats away at our hearts, and so it is the source of all fear. And why shouldn't we be afraid? Right? Death is darkness. Death is the end. Death is separation. It's pain. It's suffering. It's loss. It's the unknown. But when's the last time you actually sat and thought about your own death? And so we frantically scramble here in this life, trying to keep everything just right, while we simultaneously do our best to distract ourselves from the reality that one day soon we will die. But if we're honest... All the scrambling and all the busyness in the world in a quiet moment cannot keep the fear of death from eating away at us. And it's into that darkness, into that gloom, into that hopelessness that God speaks. Our passage comes to us 400 years after the last time God had spoken to his people. 400 years, God was silent. No prophet, no scripture, not a word. But in a flash, an angel appears because the time had had come for God to accomplish his redemption. And the first words from God, the first message from God through an angel to a priest and ultimately to us are these words. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. It's the title of this short Advent series. As we look at these three, you'll see in each of these three encounters, an angel appears 
and their first word, whoever they're addressing, is something like, do not be afraid, fear not. And so as we look at the angel's announcement to Zechariah, he's given two reasons not to fear. And those are going to be our headings for this morning. Two reasons not to fear. Don't be afraid. Why not? Your prayer has been heard. Your prayer has been answered. Your prayer has been heard. Your prayer has been answered. Let's look first. Your prayer has been heard. The first question we have to ask, and, and you can see this here. If you have your Bible open, uh, look at uh, chapter 1, verse 13. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. The first question we have to ask is, what was Zechariah praying for? What was he praying for? And you might think the obvious answer is that he was praying for a child. Because the text tells us that Elizabeth uh, was barren and that they were both advanced in years. Uh, but I don't think so. I don't think that's what he's praying for. Uh, why? In the first place, we learn that Zechariah was functioning in his role as a priest. Look at verse 8. Verse 8, we read this. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So you need to understand a couple of things. Uh, by this time, by Zechariah's day, the priesthood had been divided up into 24 divisions. We read that he was a part of the 8th division, the division of Abijah. And in total, you, you don't get this from the text, I'm just, this is background history stuff. By this time, there were 18,000 priests. 18,000 serving in one each one uh, of 24 divisions. And what that meant was that on this day, Zechariah was performing a once-in-a-lifetime duty. Because there were so many priests, you were only permitted to go into the temple and offer incense but one time in your life. If that, you had to be chosen by lot, and if you got chosen by lot, that's it. You get one, chance, you get one time to do it. So on this day, which would have been one of the most significant days in Zechariah's life, as God's people gathered outside the temple for afternoon prayer, with coincide, which coincided with the offering of incense, he went in to perform his duty as a priest and offer up the incense. And you know, as a priest, he represented the people before God. He was going in to offer up the prayers of the people to God. That's what the incense represented. Now you can imagine... Or can you imagine? This is supposed to be a rhetorical question. Can you imagine Zechariah taking this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity where he's supposed to be representing the people and lifting up the prayers of the people and going into the temple and praying to the Lord regarding a personal concern? Okay, so that's reason number one. But, but consider also, and by the way, most commentators recognized that for him to do that would have been deeply inappropriate. Okay, so that's reason number one. We're trying to get to the question, what's he praying for? I'm saying, I don't think he's praying for a child. Number two, look at how Zechariah responds when the angel tells him he's going to have a child. If, if, if Zechariah really was praying for a child, imagine the scenario. Zechariah goes in and he's praying in the temple for the Lord to miraculously grant him a child 
we would assume that at least he believed there was a possibility that God would answer his prayer. But his response to the angel telling him that Elizabeth would have a son is complete disbelief. So much so that he is rebuked by the angel and made mute. Now, most likely, he and Elizabeth had stopped praying for a child a long while ago. They had resigned resigned themselves to living a life without a child, without an heir. But he was praying for something. So what was it? If he wasn't praying for a child, what was he praying for? Well, again, his role in this instance is to represent and offer up the prayers on behalf of Israel. And so most likely, he would have been praying for God to show favor to the nation. doesn't say it there explicitly in the text, but as a priest going into the temple to represent the people, most likely what he would have been praying for is that the Lord would remember his people, that he would again show favor to his people. Uh, Perhaps he prayed the words of the prophets who spoke of a day when God would restore the fortunes of his people. Or maybe he prayed something like what the psalmist prayed in Psalm 74. Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion where you have dwelt. Again, you need to remember that this is 400 years after Since a word has been spoken from God. And the text reminds us that Zechariah was a priest during a very dark and dreadful time in the history of the Jewish nation. The passage begins this way. Do you see? Go go up to the very top. Verse 5. What does it say? In the days of Herod. It situates Zechariah at a particular time in history. It's a reminder that Israel at this time was not a free nation, but because of Israel's sin and idolatry, God had handed them over in judgment to their enemies so that they were drug off into exile. And if you were here a little while uh, earlier this year, you remember we went through Nehemiah and we heard, we were reminded again of the story of how God brought people back Uh, from exile, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city, but that even after all of that, they persisted in intermarrying with pagan peoples and polluting their worship with false practices. And so they continued on in their sin. And so by Zechariah's day, Judea was not the free and powerful nation that it once was, but a servile province in the Roman Empire And that empire had installed Herod the Great, a puppet king who was hated by his own family, who was hated by the Jewish people, and who was remembered for his ruthlessness, cruelty, and paranoia. He did rebuild the temple and expand it, so that was good. But he was a cruel leader. And his rule over them was a reminder that they were ultimately a province and subjects of a larger Roman empire. For any God-fearing Jew, it was a dark and awful time 
in which the words of Asaph in, in Psalm 77 would have rolled off their lips easily. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? There's a reason we sang this just a moment, a moment ago. There's a reason we sing at verse 1 of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Here are the lyrics. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. You know, the story of God's people is a story of, of slavery and, and, and uh, the, the, the hope that God would deliver. You can go back to the Exodus. You go to the exile. But here again they are. In exile, here they are again, though they are in, uh, physically in Jerusalem, they are captive. They are subjects of a foreign people. Though the passage tells us Zechariah was a righteous man who walked blamelessly in all God's commandments, this surely would have been a uniquely powerful temptation for Zechariah to believe that God had forgotten him that he had angrily shut up his compassion for him. Why? Because he was without an heir. He was without a child, which in Zechariah's day was considered by many to be one of God's chief blessings. I, I wonder if you've ever felt like that before. I wonder if you have felt, perhaps even as you sit here, like God has forgotten you or shut up his compassion toward you. Maybe you look at your life and you just ask, has God forgotten me? Has God turned his back on me? Has he shut his ear to me? Has he finally gotten fed up with all of my failures and my continual mistakes and left me? It hasn't been 400 years of silence, but maybe even as you sit here, it feels like it might as well be. A difficult relationship that won't seem to improve. A frustrating work environment that keeps getting worse. Chronic pain that won't go away. The desire for a spouse or a child that continually goes unmet. Whatever it is, It strikes at the very core of our fear that maybe God has abandoned us. Maybe God has left. Maybe maybe your problems are just your own and there is no help coming, ever. Brothers and sisters, what comfort we should feel in hearing what Zechariah heard on that day. Do not be afraid, for your prayer has been heard. Zechariah, God says through his messenger, I I have not forgotten you, and I have not forgotten my people. I have not forsaken you, and you are not alone. You, You know, in the Bible, names are pretty significant. There's a way, if you're reading through your Bible, there's a way that you can overdo it. You know, you can you can look for too much meaning in a name. But here, it's pretty unmistakable. 400 years, God has been silent. And when he finally speaks through his messenger, 
to announce his glorious plan of redemption, he speaks to a, to a priest whose name is Zechariah. Do you know what it means? God remembers. God remembers. And this is his word to Zechariah. Your prayers have been heard. I remember. You're not forsaken. You are not alone. Zechariah, of course, would father John the Baptist, the forerunner to the incarnate son of God, the Messiah. And you know, the first thing the incarnation says to us is this. No matter what is happening in your life, God has not forgotten you. He sees you. He remembers. He's not forsaken us. He's not shut up his compassion. He has not left us to just be condemned by our sin. There is one who is gloriously bigger and greater than the universe he created, and yet astoundingly, he knows your exact place in that universe. And he, in Christ Jesus, has done everything to make it so that you can be reconciled to him, so that you can know his perfect redemption. His heart is not only to remember you, but to do eternal good to you. How can you know? I'm telling you, God remembers you. He hasn't forgotten. The the incarnation, the first word it speaks to us is don't be afraid. God's not forgotten you. He hears, he sees. How can you know? How can you know for sure? Because God knew the redemption that he would bring in the fullness of time included his son who would be hung up on a cross and on that cross he would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day and you do not answer and by night, but I find no rest. And as Jesus hangs on that cross, as he cries out to to his father, the perfect son of God who has no sin in him, as he cries out to his father on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know what he hears? Silence. An eternal, deafening, condemning silence. Because on the cross, he is bearing the eternal silence that you deserve. On the cross, God the Father really did shut up his compassion in anger, but not towards you, towards Jesus. And he experienced the full fury of his anger. Why? Why? So that God could say to you, do not be afraid. I hear you always. I will never leave you. Even when I feel far away from you, even when you don't understand what I am doing, I hear you and I am with you. And you can know it because Jesus Christ on the cross was abandoned so that you never would be. But the good news is not only does he hear, he answers. Prayers heard, prayers answered. I'm I'm telling you, do not be afraid. Prayers heard, prayer answered. Look look again with me at verse 13. It says, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. 
For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Zechariah goes into the temple and lifts up prayers and incense, asking God to show favor to his people, to remember his people, and he gets an unexpected answer to his prayer, doesn't he? Zechariah gets an answer he was not expecting. The angel Gabriel shows up and says, Zechariah, good news, you're going to be a daddy. Your, Your wife, your barren wife, is going to bear you a son. But not only that, Zachariah, you're going to be a dad, but not only that, the son you're going to have is going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. He's going to be the one that announces the coming of the Lord who will bring the redemption of God's people. Zachariah was not expecting that, I'm pretty sure. As we look at what the angel says to Zachariah, What I want to do with the rest of our time is see five things about God and the redemption that he brings in Christ uh, that that come from uh, this announcement. That if we would dwell on them, will give us strong encouragement in the face of every fear. So the the angel comes and he announces this amazing news. Zechariah, you're going to have a son and he's going to be John the baptizer who's going to be the forerunner to Jesus the Messiah. And and as we look, there are five things I think we see about God, his character, and the redemption he he brings. And if we would dwell on these things, we would have strong encouragement in the face of every fear. Here's the first thing. Number one, God delights to accomplish his purposes through impossible circumstances. God delights to accomplish his purposes through impossible circumstances. This is a bit of a pattern for God, isn't it? If, when, you, when you hear the angel announce this, Elizabeth, barren, you're going to have a child, you're like, I think I've seen God do this before. I've, I've seen this before. We think of Sarah, Rebecca, Hannah, Rachel, the wife of Manoah and Samson's mother, all barren until God miraculously intervenes. And now here, Elizabeth, barren, is going to have a son, and we know Just a little bit later, we're going to see next week, he's going to come to a virgin and say, you're going to conceive? You see, God delights to accomplish his purposes through humanly impossible circumstances. Throughout redemptive history, God has demonstrated over and over again to bring about his will in humanly impossible ways. And and who can make sense of this? Right? This, this is the story of the gospel, isn't it? And the gospel is foolishness to the world. That God would accomplish the redemption of a multitude of people through the death of a man. And through resurrection. It's foolishness to the world. But to us who are being saved by it, it is the power of God. You know, there is no human reason, just, just so you know, just to remind you, that there is no human reason or man-made scheme 
by which you can be right with God. It is, in the truest sense, impossible. It would be easier for you, through human means, through some kind of man-made scheme to be right with God, it would be easier to do that than it would be to fit the entire ocean into a teacup. It's impossible. But God delights to put his power on display by accomplishing the impossible so that all will know what we sang earlier, that salvation is from the Lord. If God can bring about our redemption through the impossible, how much more then is he able to accomplish the impossible in every other area of our life? A a, a strained relationship, a broken marriage, a family member or friend who is openly hostile to the gospel, a wayward child, now listen, I want, I, want, I want to say this very clearly to you. The Lord does not promise that every heartache or trial will be met with a miraculous answer. He doesn't. You're hearing me say that, right? He doesn't promise that. And yet, in the face of hardship and fear, we must remember that God is infinitely able to accomplish his, to, to accomplish his purposes no matter how impossible it may seem to us. We must hold these two truths at the same time that there is ultimately nothing that can stand in the way of God's ability to accomplish his purposes and that in every scenario, whether we understand it or not, the God of all the universe will do right. That's number one. God delights to accomplish his purposes through impossible circumstances. The second thing we hear and learn from uh, this angel's announcement is that God's sovereign plan is always what's best. God's sovereign plan is always what's best. We've already established that Elizabeth was barren and that her and her husband were both advanced in age. Uh, That ship had sailed for them. The the, the children's ship had sailed for them. And yet the the, the scriptures describe them as righteous and blameless before God. I'm going to tell you in, in a little bit that we should not look to Zechariah as an example. But in this, we should. To Zechariah and Elizabeth, we should look to them as an example. Though there was sadness, and though Elizabeth and Zechariah even felt the pangs of shame from their own community, you see that at the very, uh, the very last verse, right? When, when Elizabeth says, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me and took away my reproach from among the people. There was a shame that she felt because of her barrenness. And yet even the face of that grief and that sadness and even that shame Their grief did not give way to bitterness or resentment or anger. They continued trusting in the Lord. They were righteous before God. They walked blamelessly before the Lord. That's not saying that they were righteous because of their blameless activity. They were not righteous in and of their own power, but they were righteous before God because in faith, they walked out in faith uh, the, the commands of the Lord. They continued trusting in the Lord, and now when they least expect it, God shows up with a blessing they could never have planned for. God had sovereignly purposed for them to be childless until it was time for that flower bud of his promises to bloom. I I know that there are some of you in this room this morning that, that know specifically the pain of infertility, of what 
Zechariah and Elizabeth, Elizabeth experienced here. I know there are some of you more broadly that just know the pain of waiting for something, waiting for something good, but, but not getting it. While this passage certainly does not promise children or reception or getting the thing that you're longing, if you would just wait long enough, it should comfort you to be reminded of the inscrutable wisdom of God's sovereignty in your life. Why had God not allowed Zechariah and Elizabeth to conceive 20 years earlier? Because he had a better plan for them. There was something better for them. And he knew it, even though they did not. And those who have God as their father can be sure of this. That no matter their circumstances, that, that, what God, he, that God is not withholding something good from you as punishment, but is giving to you what he knows is best for you. That in every circumstance, we can never conclude that God is just against me and he's giving, he's giving me something that ultimately is bad for me. He's punishing me. He's judging me. No, in Christ, we know that God the Father gives to his children what is best for them. And while we may not understand it right now, all things will become clear at one point and we will see what I just said, that the God of all the universe has done right for us, has been loving toward us, has given us exactly what we needed. Number two, let me give you number three. Number one, God delights to accomplish his his purposes through impossible circumstances. Number two, God's sovereign plan is always best. Number three, and brothers and sisters, I hope this is an encouragement to you. God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. We read earlier from Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will return the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Hundreds of years earlier, the prophet Malachi speaks of a day that's coming when God will send one like Elijah to bring about the awesome day of the Lord. And the angel Gabriel shows up and he says, Zechariah, that day is today. Why? Because God keeps his promises. He fulfills all of his promises. You you, you know, there are only two places in scripture. Kids, do you remember, raise your hand if you remember the the angel's name in this passage. What is it? It's Gabriel. Do you know there are only two places in scripture where Gabriel appears? There's one here in Luke, and you'll actually see him again next week. But here in Luke, and then another place in Daniel. Daniel 9. And do do you know, I'm going to read it for you, but do you know what's happening in Daniel 9? It's very interesting. Daniel is doing basically the same thing that Zechariah is doing. He's going to the Lord in prayer on behalf of his people. Do you remember that in Daniel? When Daniel goes to the Lord and prays for his people. He's in exile, he's in Babylon, and he faces towards Jerusalem and prays for his people, and this is what he prays. He prays, O Lord, this is Daniel, by the way, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, 
Listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. He lifts up his arms and he prays to the Lord, remember your people, show mercy. Our our name has become a byword among the nations. Remember and restore your people. And as he's praying, just like Zechariah, do you know who shows up? Gabriel. And Gabriel shows up and he says, Daniel, your prayers have been heard. And then he shows him this vision. And you know what the vision is? It's a vision of the redemption that God would work for his people. I'm not going to give you the whole vision because it's pretty extensive. But the point is, Gabriel shows up and he unfolds for Daniel this this almost unbelievable vision of how God is going to work redemption for his people. And he says, it's coming, it's coming. And now 600 years later, Gabriel shows up in the temple, you know, when Daniel's praying, restore the sanctuary, Gabriel shows up in the temple where Zechariah is praying, and he says, that day, Zechariah, that day is today. Today is the day that that amazing vision that Daniel saw, that day is, is happening right now. I'm bringing that redemption to pass. And the first stage in that is going to be, you're going to have a son, and he's going to announce the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the king. It's going to kick off with the, re- the, the arrival of the last prophet, you know, the, the wild man, John the baptizer, who will announce the coming of the Lord. And, and John, John, John the Baptist, you know, he's going to be like, I think I've used this example before. You, you, you ever watch the, the State of the Union address? You know, yeah, that's, that's right. The State of the Union address, and at the beginning, there's a guy, and he, he kind of comes out from the back, and he just, he says, ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States, and the President comes up, and then he sort of just fades into the background, you never hear from him again. That's John the Baptist. John the Baptist shows up on the scene, and he says, ladies and gentlemen, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he kind of just fades off into the back and you don't hear from him again. You hear a couple little things. But But the point of all that, what is the point of all that? God keeps his promises. 600 years earlier, he had promised this redemption. And frankly, we can go even before that, right? We can go to Genesis 3 when he promised that an offspring of Eve would crush the serpent. That God keeps his promises. Every promise he has ever made to you in Scripture, he will keep. He will fulfill. And therefore, you don't have to be afraid. Number four. That's one, two, three. Number four. The gospel is always good news that comes into brokenness, sorrow, and helplessness. The gospel is always good news that comes into brokenness, sorrow, and helplessness. Remember what what we're doing here? I'm showing you five things that we see from Zechariah's announcement here that reminds us of God's character and the redemption that he brings 
that we might have strong encouragement in the face of every fear. Here's the fourth thing I'm telling you. The gospel is always good news that comes into brokenness, sorrow, and helplessness. In verse 19, after Zachariah's response, which we're going to talk about in just a minute, Gabriel answers him and says, I am Gabriel. Right? Can you, can you imagine being Zechariah? Like, wait, no, how's this going to happen? And, and Gabriel's answer is, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. <laughs> Zechariah must have been like, okay. He says, I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this what? Good news. Literally gospel. I was sent to bring you this gospel. And consider how this gospel comes to Zechariah. It comes into brokenness. It comes into sorrow. It comes into helplessness. The helplessness of his situation, both on a personal and a national level. What can he do? What can Zechariah do to change the barrenness of his wife? What can he do to change his situation of childlessness? He can do nothing. And yet what he hears is the announcement, not of what he must do, but what God will do. And what can he do to bring about the redemption of his people? Nothing. But again, God gives him the announcement, not of what he must do, but what he is going to do. He says, uh, Zechariah, whether you like it or not, you are having a son. And he is going to announce the coming of the Messiah. And this is at the very heart of the gospel, isn't it? That it comes to us in our sin. The gospel doesn't come to you once you've fixed yourself up. The gospel doesn't come to you when you've made yourself worthy. The gospel comes to you when you are dead, when you are in sin, in your brokenness, in your helplessness, in your need. While we were dead in our trespasses. And it doesn't come with a list of rules or 10 steps to follow or some prescription to make us godly. No, it comes to us in our sin and says, this is what God has done for you in Christ. To deliver you from death. The gospel comes to us as news into brokenness and sorrow and helplessness. The announcement of a finished work. We read earlier, uh, uh, Brian read for us from Revelation 1. Right When I saw him, this is a, th- this image of Jesus. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his, isn't this comforting? Even just this little detail, right? That there's Jesus and he lays his hand on John. He, he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. There it is again. Fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. This is the announcement of the good news, that God has accomplished what we never could in Christ. That's number four. And number five. God must do and has done all of the work to accomplish our redemption. There is nothing Zechariah or the priests or any of the people can do. Zechariah's prayers for the redemption of Israel, and only God can bring it about. And one of the things that should stand out to us in this passage is that um, you notice the work of the Holy Spirit. We're told that the son to be born to Zechariah was going to be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. In other words, from the very beginning, this work of redemption requires the Spirit of God to bring it about. 
the angel goes on to report all that John will do in his ministry. And he will turn away or turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And all of this will, will happen not because John is some great person, but will happen supernaturally empowered as John is filled by the spirit of God. You see, if we zoom this narrative out just a little bit, we'll remember that the whole story of the Bible is the story of the redemption that God is working to bring about salvation for his people through his son. And here Christianity stands apart from every other religion. I know I've said this to you before, but let me remind you. Right? That here is where Christianity stands apart from every other religion, philosophy, man-made system, which says in order to be saved, you must reach inside yourself, you must stir up enough obedience, you must prove your faithfulness, you must demonstrate your worthiness, but Christ- Christianity says, no, 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 no. By yourself, you are absolutely hopeless in your sin, and your only hope is if God powerfully intervenes to save your life. If you would have a hope, it must come from outside of you. And God announces to Zechariah his intervening grace. That he's going to intervene into the hopelessness, in, into the, to the sadness, into the, the death that is sinful people and bring about salvation. God himself must enter into history. He must do it. He must accomplish what we cannot. And from the very beginning and throughout the gospel, that's exactly what we see God doing, right? Brothers and sisters, you know that you contribute nothing to it. You contribute nothing to it. Your salvation comes from outside, from the finished work of of Christ. You contribute nothing to it. And listen, here's what I want to tell you. If, if your salvation comes to you because of the finished work of Christ, brought about by the powerful, sovereign working of God, and he's the one that does it, you never have to be afraid that you're going to lose it. You never have to be afraid that you're going to lose it because you didn't win it to begin with. It came to you by grace. He did the work. He applied it to you by your spirit, and so you can rest. You can know. You can relax and not fear because God has done all the work to accomplish your redemption. So as I close here, how how should we respond? How should we respond to this announcement? Well, not like Zechariah. I told you I was going to get to his response. Not like Zechariah. Right, Verse 18, Zechariah says to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. The text tells us that Zechariah's response is the opposite of faith in the words of God's messenger. And so as a result, the angel makes him mute. Probably he can't hear or speak. Both, listen, both as a judgment, a disciplinary redemptive judgment on Zechariah, 
and as a way to conceal the fulfillment of God's promise until the time was right. And, and in Zechariah's response, we learn a couple things. We learn that God's promises are concrete. Just sort of reiterating the same point. that His promises, uh, he always keeps them. His promises are concrete. They cannot be hindered, frustrated, or prevented from coming to pass. Do you, do, do, don't you like that last phrase? Right here, here's Zechariah, and he just he he. How is this going to happen? Not in like a. I'm curious. Like that's how Mary's going to be. She she's going to be like, how is this going to happen? But Zechariah's response is not faith; it's disbelief. And when Gabriel answers, he's like, "Behold, you're going to be silent, unable to speak until the day these things take place, because you do not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. They're going to be fulfilled. His promises are concrete." You can trust them. But also, that at times, God shows his people what you might call a severe mercy. A severe mercy so that they might learn more deeply the blessing of trusting him. That's what Zechariah has shown, a severe mercy. The great irony of this passage is that Zechariah has just been told the greatest news that anyone has ever been told. On two counts. The first is, Zechariah You had no expectation that you would ever be able to be a father. But guess what? Today, I'm telling you, you're going to be a dad. And second, the fact that you're going to be a dad is going to signal the arrival of the Messiah who will bring redemption to the whole world. Is the greatest news anyone has ever seen. And Zachariah can't tell anyone about it. Why would God do this? It is to bring about an unshakable faith in Zachariah's own heart. Perhaps you find yourself asking that same question about something happening in your own life. Why would God do this? Well, in Christ, you can be sure it is always to do this same work that he's doing in Zacharias' heart. This very same work to drive you deeper and deeper into the blessing of trusting him. And so the call this morning is to believe. To take God at his word And herein lies the remedy for fear. This is the remedy. The remedy for fear, faith in the gracious, powerful, all-wise, faithful character of God to bring about his perfect purposes in your life. The gospel powerfully demonstrates that he is unwaveringly and eternally for you. That he has not left you. That he hasn't forsaken you. That he hasn't abandoned you. That he will hear and answer. So, to trust him this morning and do not be afraid. Amen? And let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and I pray that you would make it uh, a, a comforting bomb to the hearts of these brothers and sisters, that they would be fed and nourished by it, that you would strengthen us by your spirit to walk not in fear, but in faith, trusting your character and seeing the great grace that you have put on display for us in the life, death, and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us to cling to him and look to him in the face of every fear, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.